that the very first house, the very first place, the very first house of worship, that has been placed for humanity, is that which is in Makkah Mukarramah. Mubarakan that it is blessed, wahudan and it contains guidance lil alamin for the entire universe for all of the worlds. Fihi ayatum bayinat and in it there are clear and manifest signs, such as Makamu Ibrahim, such as the place of Ibrahim Salam, Waman Dakhalahu Kana Amina, and whoever enters into that place, whoever enters into Makamukarama, Kana Amina is has aman has uh, peace and tranquility and serenity descend upon them. One of the most incredible gifts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to humanity is the Baytullah, is the Kaaba, is the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Makkah Mukarramah. It has a very deep historical significance. It is the place where, uh, it is the area in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down Sayyidina Adam al-Islam and Amma Hawar radiallahu anha. And in fact, the plain of Arafat, Arafat comes from Ma'rifat to know or recognize one another. The plain of Arafat where we gather on Hajj and the Yom al-Arafat, Arafat is that place upon which Adam and Hawar met one another. In other words, they were dropped down onto earth separately in that vicinity and they searched for one another. And the field or the plain of the Medan of Arafat is where they met one another. Jabali Rahma, the mountain of Rahma, is also the place where Sayyidina Adam Salam made dua to Allah, Rabbana Dalamna Anfusana, that verily Allah SWT, we have wronged ourselves, and He asked Allah SWT to forgive them, to send our mercy upon them, for if Allah does not forgive us, then truly we will be amongst the lost ones. Ibrahim Salam, Sayyidina Adam Salam was the first person to make the Kaaba. And then later on, after it's uh, after it lost its value in human eyes, human beings stopped to worship it, worship uh, in it. The Prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail rebuilt the Kaaba. This is one of the special things that Allah SWT took from Sayyidina Ibrahim that He sent revelation upon him to rebuild the Kaaba at its original site in Makkah Mukarramah. And his two sons, Ismail and Ishaq helped them to do that. But by the time the Prophet came, once again, the Kaaba had lost its essential significance in the eyes of people. In fact, the pre-Islamic Arabs had put idols uh, inside the Kaaba itself as well as around it. And although they did continue to view it as a place of worship, they viewed it as a place of sanctity or sacredness for their pagan or, or idolatrous mushrik religion. As Muslims, however, right, its historical value, however how great it is, the Kaaba actually probably only realized its quintessential or its incredible value and worth or immense importance in the eyes of humanity 
with the advent of the Ummah of Muhammad Mustafa Because Allah SWT put a special function and role in the Kaaba. The first function of the Kaaba is that it is actually the jihad or the direction in which we pray our Salah. All, all Muslims all over the world, as though we were initially ordered, the Prophet and the Sahaba were initially ordered to pray their Salah facing Jerusalem, Baytul Muqaddas. However, the Prophet continually used to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Ya Allah, I want you to change the direction of our Qibla, the way we place in prayer, to the Kaaba in Makkah Mukarramah. And eventually at one point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered the du'as of the Prophet and revealed to him, and his verses mentioned in the Qur'an, that you should turn your faces henceforth to the Kaaba in Makkah Mukarramah. Now many times people wonder that why is it that we all pray in that direction? Are we in some sense praying to the Kaaba? So we do not pray to the Kaaba, we are praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but we face the direction of the Kaaba for a particular reason. And the reason for that is just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the verse I mentioned in the beginning that this is the first place of worship, the first place where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descended what in Arabic we call it tajalliyat. This Arabic word tajalli means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's spiritual blessings that He manifests or He causes to descend upon a particular place or upon the heart of a person or upon any anything. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's are warid, are descending upon the Kaaba. Immediately above the Kaaba, in the angelic realm, there is another house called the Baytul Ma'mur. The Baytul Ma'mur is another sort of house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, place of worship. This is around this around which the angels make tawaf. And again, immediately on top of that is the kursi and then the arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of these things, right, if you were to drop down a perpendicular line from the kursi and arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala down to the angelic realm, that line would pass through the Baytul Ma'mur and if you were then to drop it into the human universe, that line would eventually reach the Kaaba in Makkah Mukarramah. So it is actually those tajalliyat that form the focus of our direction in prayer. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the being we worship and we are praying to Him. But it is because of that, those special tajalliyat in that place that we physically direct our faces in that direction when we pray. Therefore, even if Allah forbid the Kaaba was to somehow be wiped away from the face of the earth, if somebody was to bomb it or raise it to the ground, we would still pray in that same direction. So it's not the stone or the bricks that we're praying to, it's that area or that place that we're praying, we're facing in that direction. The Kaaba has a second significance other than Salah, and that is the significance that it has once a year during Hajj or throughout the year when people go for Umrah or people go to make Nafli Tawab. And that this journey to Makkah Mukarramah itself is an incredible mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a manifestation of His love. The way the ulama have explained the importance of Makkah Mukarramah is as follows. That first Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to us the month of Ramadan. In the month of Ramadan we do bodily worship. We abstain from food and drink and marital relations for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We worship by doing some type of majahada upon our body. And there's a second type of worship that sometimes people will do in Ramadan or after Ramadan, which is paying their zakah, which is a monetary form of worship that out of the permissible income we have earned in this dunya, we give a certain portion of it in the sake in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hajj then is the ultimate journey, the ultimate ibadah that combines both bodily worship and monetary worship that contains physical struggle and financial hardship in which a person travels to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's house in Makkah Mukarramah. 
Now that house itself, basically, whether you go for Hajj or Umrah, our Mashaik have explained that there are two basic reasons to undertake this journey. The first reason to undertake this journey is to eradicate your nafs, to eliminate your arrogance, your pride, your conceit, your vanity, because in the course of this journey, every time a person goes, a person has to undergo some type of hardship. And when a person goes and a person observes the rules of ihram, and when men wear two white sheets in which they become leveled, there's a leveling process that is done when a person goes to the Kaaba. That when you go in the state of ihram, number one, Allah SWT levels everyone to the same, right, brings everyone to the same level by decreeing that they wear the same type of clothing. By decreeing that they forego soap or washing or perfume or combing or oil or any type of beautification or any care or worry for themselves. They're leveled in the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other words, the thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses to level humanity, to reduce them to the common denominator, is love for Him, dedication for Him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants it when people go there, they forget everything. They physically left their homes, their families, their jobs, their occupations, their responsibilities, their hobbies, their habits, their daily routine. They physically extract themselves from that and transport themselves in this physical journey. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants that they also spiritually extract themselves from their worries, from their thoughts, from their goals, from their aspirations, from their identities, from their realities, from their ranks, from their socioeconomic status, from their class. They extract themselves from that as well and level themselves and appear before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at His home, at the Baytullah, simply merely as servants. In other words, to strip ourselves of every identity except the primary identity that we are ibad or each and every one of us is an abd, the servant and slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So an incredible leveling happens there, a humbling experience takes place. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does this to remind us of our asal, our original purpose in life. وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّةِ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لَيَعْبُدُونَ That verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, that verily we have not created jinn or humanity except that they should exist in a state of ubudiyat, except that they should always conceive of themselves and carry themselves in a state of servanthood and slavehood to me. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the rites of ihram and through the rites of hajj or umrah levels us immediately and lowers us and reduces us back to our original intent and purpose on earth. So the first purpose then is to er erase a person's nafs. One right is the process of leveling and the second is when you divorce yourself from your life, your career, your aspirations, from everything, when it's just you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Your purpose of existence, your day and night in Makkah Makarama has no other meaning, right? That is also a very humbling experience because many times even uh, those of us who are involved in studying or, or, or sharing the deen, we can get too caught up in our own deeny activities. And we sometimes even that is a distraction from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second reason Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed this place to exist, made this center of worship and made this journey of Hajj and Umrah upon this Ummah, is so that we would use this journey as a means to reconcile ourselves with our Lord. Just like we physical, physically journey or physically travel to his home, to the bait of Allah, the purpose of, of Hajj and Umrah is to make, to undergo some type of journey, some trial, some hardship, some level of ibadah, some worship, some zikr, some remembrance of Allah, 
so that your heart makes a spiritual journey back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that we re-establish our relationship with Him those of us who become disconnected to Him by going on this journey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to reconnect our link to Him and this is the second incredible aspect of this journey and essentially then this is a journey what they call safari mahabba this is a journey of love this is a journey of a lover to the home of his beloved and the rites and rituals that are affiliated with it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done it so that we could have some way to do izhar to manifest to display to show to release our love that's really ideally the way this journey is is conceived that a person has so much love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much longing for him that Although they can't meet him or see him in this world, the next best thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them is that you can come to my house. You can come to Makkah Makarama. And so a person out of longing and love makes this journey. That's why when people arrive there, they're very, despite how tired they might be from their journey, everyone is always restless to immediately go and see the Kaaba. Everybody wants to see, right? Cast that first glance upon that blessed house. That first glance upon which the Prophet said that when a person sees the Kaaba, Baytul Sharif for the first time, their du'as are accepted. Any du'a they make on that first glance. And many ulama of their opinion is this applies to every journey. In other words, one is the very first time you see the Kaaba in your life. That is a one-time opportunity. And the second is, and that certainly has a golden and a special uh, level. And the second thing is, is that any time a person makes this journey, any time a person sees the Kaaba for the first time, even if a person goes to Medina Manawara and then returns to Makkah Makarma to do Umrah again on the way back to Pakistan, that also is a journey. Any time a person makes a journey which requires them to put on ihram and re-enter the Kaaba, re-enter Makkah Makarma and go to the Kaaba, that first glance is also, according to many ulama, also a moment in which Allah SWT accepts our du'as. So it's almost like an initial gift, right? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to us that when you come on this journey, immediately simply upon arrival, simply upon gazing or glancing, casting a single glance at my house, I will give you this first gift up front that any dua you make at this moment will be granted. Then the next thing is that a person proceeds from that and a person can continue to look at the Kaaba as long as they want. It doesn't mean that the second your eyes blink, you should stop making dua. Once you blink your eyes, fine, that first glance is finished, but a person should continue to make du'as as long as their heart wishes. The second thing then is when a person feels this attraction. The Kaaba is like a magnet for the hearts of the believers. All over the world, if you go anywhere in the world, ask any Muslim in the world, would you like to go to the Kaaba? Any Muslim is ready at a moment's notice that if you can give him the financial ability to go, if you can take care of whatever responsibilities he has to leave behind, any Muslim with a, with a living heart, with a, a certain basic level of iman in their heart, desires to see the Kaaba. Whether they've been before or they've never been, everybody desires to go to Makkah Makarma. So when they arrive and they take that first glance, and immediately afterwards the magnet pulls them. And so they get drawn into the mataf and they start making tawaf. This itself, right, is a type of love. Just like in Arabic poetry, they talk about the moth who loves the flame. And the moth or the insect flies around the candle, right? Because of their love, their fascination, they're enamored of light. They're enamored of the way the flame flickers. And they keep flying around it, flying around it. And even though they know, right, that entering the flame will lead to their death, 
that love has such a magnetic effect on them that as they fly around, they keep flying closer and closer and closer. Eventually they can't control themselves and they end up flying into the flame. That is right. Exactly that is the kafirat or the condition or the hal of a believer when they enter the mutaf. So they come closer, they walk in and they start making tawaf. One round, two round, they make seven rounds of the khanakama. As they do that, one other thing they do when they start their tawaf is we make isti'lam of the hajr aswad The hajr aswad itself, every single thing in the Haram Sharif, in Makkah Makarma, in Medina Manara, is an incredible mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on this ummah. So when a person ends this tawaf, then there's a particular place in the Kaaba known as the Multazim, which is basically only enough space for about two or three people, which is between the Hajar Aswad and the Bab, the door of the Kaaba. And the Prophet described this as that place if a person stands on it or clings to it or presses their chest and face against it, it is as if they are pressing themselves against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or they get as much solace and comfort as a baby gets when she is taken into the lap or pressed to the chest of her mother that's how much solace and comfort a believer gets when they are pressed up against the Kaaba at the place of the Multazim so after having come closer and made the seven rounds of tawaf then a person wants to get even closer a person wants to have contact a person wants to put their entire right to press their torso and their face and their cheeks and their eyes up against the Kaaba itself. That is in the ultimate. That is in some sense, according to somebody, the closest a person can get in this world, right? Whether it's Multazim or in Medina Manara, which we'll talk about shortly, Riyadh and Jannah, these are the two closest uh, or the most blessed places, right? For a worshipper to do worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for a person to make dua, for a person to make istighfar, to seek Allah's forgiveness and to repent unto Him. And when you go on this journey, you're amazed that I think the reality is is that this ummah doesn't do qadr of these places. Because if our ummah actually, given that we're one billion people, if we actually did qadr of Makkah Makarama, if we valued it, if we esteemed it, if we honored it uh, as much as it deserved to be valued, I don't think there would be a spot available in Makkah. You wouldn't be able to enter the city. There should be that many people there all the time. Right? Allah subhanahu wa just made the system that the vast majority of us uh, for the vast majority of the time are busy in other occupations and it's just an occasional thing uh, that people are able to go to the Kaaba. But sometimes when you're there you're amazed that out of 6 billion people in the world 1 billion are Muslims and out of 1 billion people I mean in this type of off season I would say only about 10-15 thousand are there at any moment in time. And making tawaf there may be a few hundred people at any moment in time. And like I told you at the Multazim, there are only two or three people in the entire human race at any moment in time who are allowed to get that level of proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's a strange uh, nizam, it's a wondrous system that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made. And you're amazed when you look at the people who are there People are there from all types of backgrounds, all types of countries. And in fact, really, people are there with all different levels of religiosity. It's not that only extremely hardcore religious pious people are there. There are all types of people are there, but there's something, there must be something in everyone that Allah SWT has accepted them for this journey. Right? The Prophet said that a person doesn't go to Makkah Allah SWT invites them. 
And that's an incredible thing. I mean, it's even, you know, it's mind-boggling to think that somebody could be invited, right, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his house and allow, this is only the fuzzle, the grace, the rahmah, the mercy, the kindness, the beneficence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he would even allow someone, right, especially uh, sort of sinning and incomplete servants like us, to go and even be allowed to look at the Kaaba. That itself is even something that none of us probably even deserves. The right to even look at the Kaaba, let alone to make tawaf or to cling to the Kaaba at the Multazam. So this is one of Allah Taala's most incredible mercies. And many times, you know, when, when, when I was there, I think that a person, you really can't fully understand Islam unless you've been to these two places. I mean, may Allah Taala take all of us there over and over again. But you can't, I mean, they're so important, they're so central uh, to our religion, that it's almost impossible to fully understand what Islam is, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us, what the special status of the Prophet is, without visiting these two places. So Makkah Makarma really is a gathering of those Muslims who have some love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in their heart, and Allah Ta'ala chose to send His grace and favor upon them and allow them to come. And you'll be amazed, you see, I mean, different, the way different people make du'a, the way different people make du'af, the way people cling to the multazim. I mean, there's so many stories in Muslim history and so many even contemporary times, things that people have witnessed. Uh, it's just an incredible sight to see. The other major blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given is Medina Manawra. And interestingly, these two cities both have a very different feel to them. It's, a incredi- it's a totally different feeling and sort of ambiance and aura that you get in Makkah Makarama and a totally different feeling and ambiance that you feel in Medina Manawra. The unique thing about Medina Manawara is the Rosa or the resting place of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And in some ways it's even more unique than Makkah Makarama. And the reason for that is as follows is that because our belief is that Allah SWT is not confined to any particular space. So we don't think that Allah SWT lives in the Kaaba or is literally his home or house in the sense that he's there. So in the sense that Allah Taala's awareness and His companionship, His ma'iyat, and His qurb and His proximity is with us everywhere. It's with us as much here as it is in the Kaaba, right? However, in the in the case of the Prophet that that's not true. The Prophet is not everywhere. The Prophet is actually resting in that specific place, the Rosa, which is in, in, a part now of the Masjid al-Nabwi. So when you go to Medina Manawara, when you go in front of the Rosa, it's a different experience. In other words, normally, right, when you, in fact, the Prophet sent a hadith that whenever one of my believers will send blessings upon me, if he sends blessings, Darud Salawat, at my roza, at my grave, I will be able to hear him or her directly. However, if she sends it to me from anywhere else, the angels will bring it to me. So it means that when a person goes to Medina Manara, it's incredibly, it's different, uh, it's a unique experience in that sense, because you have a unique proximity or awareness uh, of the Prophet and, and really, literally, the Prophet is aware of the people who come to his grave. He is aware of the people who come to say salam. And according to Hadith, he hears that salam directly, without any intermediary, without the angels coming. And that is actually an extremely daunting experience. Because when you look at the Hadith, sometimes when you read different Hadith, you would find that the Sahaba would say, 
the Prophet said about himself, Nusirtu bin Ru'ab, that Allah Ta'ala has helped me with Ru'ab by putting a certain Ru'ab, a certain awe-inspiring character to my nature. And some Sahaba would say that, you know, we would have questions that we wanted to ask the Prophet but we wouldn't ask for days because we were too much in awe of him. So if this was the state of the Sahaba, right, who were his companions, who were such pious people, they were so in awe of him in life that they would be afraid to ask him a question for days, you can imagine the awe-inspiring nature or the awe-awesome experience it is when a person tries to go in front of the Rosa. That historically many of the ulama have written, you know, how much a person really has to prepare themselves before they try to present themselves to the Prophet at his grave. There's an ayah in the Qur'an actually. Uh, its hukum is mansuh. Uh, but there was one verse in the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that before you, before any one of the believers meet the Prophet they should give sadaqah. They should give some type of charity. They should do some type of good deed to purify themselves before they enter his presence. Uh, this, the hukum of this ayah was later abrogated, but it stayed in the Qur'an as a lesson that when you go in front of the Prophet whether you're a Sahaba and you're doing it in life, or whether any one of us goes now, it's not a matter to be taken lightly. And we should try to purify ourselves of our sins, purify our consciousness before we make that, uh, before we present ourselves in front of him. Because sadaqah is viewed as something, right? It's mentioned in hadith as one way that a person can earn Allah's mercy, one possible way of atoning for transgressions and past sins. In fact, the Rodha is such an incredible place that it's the Akidah of the Ulama of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah that the most obvious place on this earth is uh, the grave of the Prophet Muhammad In fact, not just the most obvious place on earth, the most obvious thing in all of creation, even more obvious than the Kursi or Arsh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the soil that is in the grave of the Prophet because the soil has nisbat with the Prophet. And the Prophet is the greatest of creation. In other words, the Prophet Muhammad is the greatest of creation. He is more afzal, he has more virtue than the arsh, than the kursi, than the angels, than Jannah, uh, than anything. Right? Except obviously, I mean Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not creation, he is the creator. Out of all of creation, Everything is created except for Allah. And out of that entirety of creation, the most greatest thing is the Prophet himself. And therefore his resting place where he currently exists, right, where he currently uh, exists in a state, I mean it's not in a state that you and me are living, right, but he has some level of existence or being or presence in that rodha. And therefore that grave and that place, because of its nisbat or its attachment or affiliation to him, is the greatest of all creation. So that is also an incredible mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He created the system of us to go and to be able to offer our durood, our salawat, our salams, uh, our blessings, our salutations, our grace directly to the Prophet ﷺ, uh, at His rodha, at His resting place. These are two, the Kaaba and Medina Manawra, are two incredible mercies of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That really, I mean, we couldn't as an ummah if the entire Ummah was to fall to Sajza and remain in Sajza from now until the Day of Judgment, it wouldn't suffice to give thanks for either one of these ni'mas, let alone both of these bounties or blessings. In fact, the ulama write that when a person goes there, a lot of uh, things come from this fact that the Prophet can hear us. So one thing the ulama write is that what people should do when they go there is they should actually make the Prophet a witness to their testifying of faith. 
saying ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu annaka muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala verily I witness I bear witness that there is no god except you in worship and all prophets of some I bear witness that you and it's addressing him directly that you are the last and final messenger of Allah and one does this with the hope that the Prophet will testify to our Iman on the Day of Judgment. And that we make the Prophet a witness to our Shahada, a witness to our Iman, so that on the Day of Judgment the Prophet will testify that yes, this person did Shahada. He came to Medina Manawar and testified to it in front of me. In fact, according to the ulama of fiqh, other than Makkah Mukarramah, Medina Manawar and Jerusalem, there is no other type of sacred journey a person can make. In other words, you cannot, it's not, it's considered not appropriate in Islam to travel, uh, to let's say Nigeria just to visit a masjid, right? You can go to Nigeria to, to visit for tourism, to meet Muslims, whatever. But the only actual sacred sites in Islam that is permissible to make a journey simply to see that site is Makkah Makarama, Medina Manawara, and Baytul Maqdas or Baytul Maqandas, uh, Jerusalem. You get this feeling, some ulama have written on this topic that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made different Muslims with different tabiats. And there's this notion that some people are of a makki tabiat and some people are of a madani tabiat. And makki tabiat means that because makkah makarama is baytullah is the place of Allah, so some people have held this to be a manifestation of the jalal of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Some people take this very far and say that the people of Makkah Makarama are a bit more stern, a bit more serious. Uh, the air, the ambiance, the aura in Makkah Makarama is a bit more intense. And they say that in Medina Manora, there's more Jamal manifest because the Prophet was Rahmatan lil Alameen, he was a mercy for the universes, he was humble, uh, he had so much Jamal in him. So people say that Medina Manora itself and people who have Madani Tabiats, right, uh, have a more humble, soft, uh, Serve disposition. It's not really cut. This isn't a set in stone, and certainly, I mean, nobody can say it's not part of our deen. It's not mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah that people have these tabiats. But I mean, it has been the experience of certain people that some people feel uh, more attracted to Makkah Makarama, more attracted to Medina Manawara in a tabi sense. Otherwise, as far as our religion goes, both of them should have equal, have an equal place in our heart, and we should have an equal love for both of those places, notwithstanding the sort of different character and nature of those two places. One of the biggest benefits of making this journey is it helps a person to increase in their du'a. Because basically this entire journey is a journey of du'as. All throughout du'a a person is supposed to make du'a. When a person makes sa'i between Safa and Marwa, a person is supposed to make du'a. When a person is sitting in Medina Manawara, a person is supposed to make du'a. After a person makes salam at the Rosa, after that salam, a person is supposed to still stand there and make du'a after that salam. So it makes a person right and it ignites the ability of a person to make du'a, to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one's own words, in, uh, in one's own way, uh, in, in sort of a heartfelt way. And that's one of the things that lasts with a person, even when a person comes back. It also re-establishes or reminds you of your identity. It's very easy in an abstract way to say, I'm a member of the Ummah of Muhammad And it's very different to actually go to Medina Manorah and to sort of 
relive the historical experiences of the city imagine the sahaba walking in those in those lanes imagine the sahaba sitting in masjid nabawi imagine the prophet reciting quran at fajr and then to go in front of the prophet and to actually be physically in his presence you don't see the prophet but you actually put yourself by going in front of the rosa you actually are putting yourself in his physical presence that is a very deep reminder right that we are a, an, a member of this ummah and that uh, you know can have a very strong powerful impact on a person so going for umrah is something really that every muslim male and female should try to do right and try to do it on a regular basis you know many times i also used to think that people should just go on hajj once many times you know that the modern secular mindset will teach you this that a person should only go once and it's not right to go more than once and you should pay for other people to go and you're being selfish but you know it's not really about being selfish it's about having it, this is just something that Allah SWT has made the system that certain people have the ability to go a lot of us actually we need to go on a regular basis because we need our battery to be recharged we need that cleansing process to take place just like a piece of clothing when it becomes dirty you put it in a washing machine and then when you take it out and you wear it but then sooner or later it's going to get dirty again it needs to go back into the washing machine again and really I mean for those of us who have this ability or who come from relatively uh, you know, better financial backgrounds it should really be our goal to have a sort of a regular pattern not necessarily every year but have a regular habit of going to Haraman Sharifan on a periodical basis to re-establish that link, to re-establish that connection, to reignite that love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to learn how to make du'as, to erase ourselves, to restore identity, our, our primary identity of being Allah Allah's slave and servant. This is, it should be our wish. If nothing else, even if we can't translate it into action, it should be the niyyah or the intention or the wish of a person. And you will find a lot of poems written in Arabic, Persian, Urdu about people who were never able to go. But their deep and incredible longing to go makes a person really, it makes a person who's gone feel embarrassed or really ashamed. And that is one thing definitely that you think about when you go, that there's so many Muslims who are better than us uh, that have not been able to go. And that sort of, you know, should be used positively to make a person do qadr. So those of us who have the asbab, have the means to go, Right, one way I mean of doing of qadr or uh, uh, of being grateful for the blessings that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given us is to make niyat that we wish to use those blessings or those asbab to visit Makkah, Makkah, and Medina, Manawra over and over again, to re-establish that link and to you know to become people of worship, to become people of zikr, to become people of mahabbat. An interesting thing about Medina Manawra also is that right next to the Prophet Muhammad are lying or resting Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq and Sayyidina Umar And this shows I mean I mean when you when you read I mean that's sort of another topic for another time, but when you look at the lives of Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar, they're so they were so loyal to the Prophet's mission and his life. And they so they were so loyal to fulfilling his mission after he passed away, right? That you really get that feeling when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed, I mean this is their destiny, right? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala determined that the two of them should be resting right next to their Prophet. It shows something. It shows some level of kabulit. It shows that everyone who goes, right, to the Rosa, 
says salams to the Prophet and also then moves a few steps to the right, uh, for the men anyway, from the men's side, and says salam to Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq as well. And then you move another one or two steps to the right, and you say salam to Sayyidina Umar as well. And it's also, I mean, it's really incredible how if a person truly submits himself to their Prophet, and if a person truly submits himself to their mission, then Allah unites a person in that mission, right? And Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar were, you know, were rewarded for their incredible dedication that they were united with the Prophet in their in the grave, which is really just a signal and a sign that surely they will be united and together with him in the eternal akhirah in Jannatul for those inshallah. And when I reflect on Sayyidina Umar, I always think that the most incredible thing about Sayyidina Umar, and this is really a lesson, uh, because Sayyidina Umar is a perfect example of how you should be with your fellow Sahaba. And that's a lesson for us, how we should be with our fellow students, or we should be uh, with our fellow seekers on the tariqah. And interestingly, Sayyidina Umar in my own, this is just my own personal uh, understanding, for me, I've always felt that the greatest thing about Sayyidina Umar is that he never had any hasad for Hazrat Abu Bakr. He never had any envy at all. In fact, there's so many stories, right? That Sayyidina Umar would think that, okay, you know, Sayyidina Abu Bakr is always outdoing me. I'm going to outdo him today. So one story, for example, is that in the Khilafat of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, there was a list of people who, poor, needy, old, elderly, who needed help, who needed khidmat. So Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Anas Khilafat made a list of people and asked different Sahaba to volunteer to write their name literally next to the name of the person they would do khidmat of. So Sayyidina Umar thought that, okay, I'm going to you know, excel in khidmat because right now Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq is busy with this Khilafah. And so one thing I can do now is I can you know, excel in khidmat. So he wrote down his name. And then when he went to this old, and he wrote down to do khidmat of an old woman, right, who was not able to uh, leave her house. And the khidmat entailed, you know, taking buckets and going out to the well and drawing water for her for the day, sweeping uh, the outer chambers of her house, etc. So he went there at Fajr time, before Fajr Salah, and when he knocked on her door, she said that, who is it? And he said, I'm your khadim, I've come to, you know, put water in your buckets and to clean your house, and etc. She said, no, the khadim has already come. Uh, and so there's no need for you. So Sayyidina Umar was very perplexed at who is it that's come. So the next day he went to Tahajjud time. When he went to Tahajjud time uh, and he knocked on the door, again the woman responded the same way that no, the Khadim has already come and gone and he's put water in my buckets and he's cleaned my house for me. There's no need for you. Then Sayyidina Umar said that okay, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to camp out all night. right? I'm going to stake out this house and see who it is. So right in the middle of the night he saw that a person was coming Right, with uh, tiptoeing along. And when that person came near, Sayyidina Umar hopped out of his hiding place and confronted him. And he, little, lo and behold, he saw that it was Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq. And he said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, O Khalifa of the time, how is it that you were here? And Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq said that I've come here to do khidmat of this woman. And then Sayyidina Umar said that, but you've come in the middle of the night and you're walking on the tips of your toes. And Hazrat Abu Bakr said that I come in the middle of the night so that because I don't want anybody to know of my comings and goings, I'm doing a khidmat only for the sake of the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I'm walking on the tips of my toes without any shoes so that nobody should be disturbed or woken up by the sound of my footfalls or my footsteps when I walk through the lanes. Once, an, once the Prophet asked, right, that, I, uh, that there's a need uh, for 
because of jihad, there's a need for people to donate. So Sayyidina Umar Ibn thought that, okay, today I will outdo Sayyidina Abu Bakr, right? And then I will give half of my money away. So he went to the Prophet and gave half of his money. The Prophet said, Ya Umar, what if you brought, he said, half of my wealth, Ya Rasulullah. What if you left for your family? Uh, I've left half. Then Sayyidina Abu Bakr came wearing uh, a tattered sort of garment. Some people think that the Arabic means he was wearing like a straw mat. He was wearing it like a lungi or dhoti or dahban, right? Wrapped around his waist. And then he brought everything he had. And then he asked the Prophet, the Prophet asked him, that, Oh, Abu Bakr, what have you brought? And he brought, Ya Rasulullah, I have brought everything that I have. I said, what have you left behind for your family then? And he said, I have left behind Allah and His Messenger. At that moment, the angel Jibreel appeared to the Prophet And the angel Jibreel was wearing the same mat. And the angel Jibreel came to the Prophet and told him that, Oh uh, Rasulullah know that Allah SWT is so pleased with Sayyidina Abu Bakr today that he has decreed that for this next day myself and all of the angels should wear the same tattered rag that Sayyidina Abu Bakr was wearing. After that, Hazrat Umar commented and he said that after that day I realized that I would never be able to match, let alone surpass or excel Sayyidina Abu Bakr Shadiq So sometimes there is like a friendly, not competition, but there is, uh, you know, both people want to do good and please their Lord. But Sayyidina Umar never had any envy. He didn't think that, oh, you know, Abu Bakr is the favorite, I'm not the favorite. And the greatest sign of this is that after the Prophet passed away, this is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in human history. Sayyidina Umar served Abu Bakr as faithfully, as loyally as he served the Prophet He immediately, he didn't hesitate in a moment. He didn't think that I'm something, I should be Khalifa, or tell her you're Khalifa, but I'll do my own thing. Immediately after the Prophet passed away, he was as loyal a servant, as dedicated a helper, as great an ally and an asset to Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiqunu as he was to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So Sayyidina Umar, his kamal, his perfection, his incredibleness was that he didn't have a drop of hasad or envy inside of him, not a drop of resentment, right? And that is an incredible thing and I think that... So in other words, the reason that Sayyidina Abu Bakr was lying there is because he had he was the greatest in the Sahaba. He had the greatest love and dedication for the Prophet unsurpassed, unmatched by any of the other Sahaba. So much so that the Prophet himself said that if you were to put the taqwa or the sawab of Sayyidina Abu Bakr on one side of the scale and put all of the other Sahaba on the other side of the scale, Sayyidina Abu Bakr's side of the scale would be heavier. And Sayyidina Umar went there not because he was at the same level, right? But simply because he didn't have hasad. He was pure, purely mukhlis, purely sincere. Out of his love for Allah's beloved, the Prophet Muhammad and due to his love for the beloved of the beloved, due to his love for Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, because that was so pure, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordained for him to have a spot there as well. And obviously then that means that Sayyidina Umar will be right there with Sayyidina Abu Bakr at the feet of the Prophet on the Day of Judgment and in Jannatullah for those. And that's an incredible thing. You feel that so much when you're there, when you think about how the two of them are lying there together. And I mean, these are just a couple of the lessons or the stories about these two places. Now the truth is that the stories of Makkah Mukarramah and Medina Munawwara, the virtues, their fazail, their merits, their benefits, their incredible uh, wonders could never be exhausted, right? We could, I mean, hours and hours uh, could be spent and even then one wouldn't be able to scratch the surface 
of the incredible nature of these places. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give all of us the ability to go there over and over again, to accept us for the visitation of these sacred places. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala let those of us, enable those of us who have had the good fortune to visit there, let us not squander what we have learned from those visits and let the barakah and the blessings of those visits remain with us until the day we die. لا إله إلا الله محمد رسول الله سبحان ربي لا محمد الله مسني على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد ببارك وسلم ربنا ظلمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين ربنا لا تذكر ربنا بعد إذ هديتنا وإنك أنت الوحاب ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وكنا عذاب النعم يا رب كريم O our Lord our kind and generous sustainer Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem ظلمنا أنفسنا Ya Allah we have wronged ourselves Ya Allah we have allowed ourselves to become distant from Makkah Mokarama and Medina Manawala Ya Allah our hearts no longer long to visit to these places Ya Allah, days and months and years go by before our hearts even think of these places. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to forgive us for our absent-mindedness. Ya Allah, we ask you to forgive us for the heedlessness that has crept into our hearts. Ya Allah, we ask you, we beg you on this day to place love for Makkah into our hearts. Place a love for Medina Manawara into our hearts. Ya Allah, let there be no greater longing for any type of journey be in our hearts. Ya Allah, except for the journey to your home, the journey to your bait. Ya Allah, the journey to your house. Ya Allah, let there be nothing more pleasing to our tongues, Ya Allah, than you too accept us to say these words, Labbaik, Allahumma Labbaik. Ya Allah, that we present ourselves to you, we present ourselves to you. Ya Allah, accept us to be presented before you in the Kaaba, and accept us to present ourselves in front of the Prophet ﷺ in the Rawdha and Medina Manawala. Ya Allah, Ya Bakrim, Ya Allah, we ask you to give us the ability to be grateful servants. Ya Allah, let us do shukr for the blessings and the bounties you have given us. Ya Allah, let us do shukr, let us be grateful for this incredible mercy that you have bestowed upon us in the form of Allah in the form of the Rawdha. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, let us become amongst you grateful and obedient servants. And Ya Allah, let us use the blessings that you have given us, Ya Allah, to visit these wonderful places. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, for those of us who have given us the tawfiq to visit your Kaaba, Ya Allah, forgive us for all of our sins. Ya Allah, that person who has been able to come into the presence of your Kaaba, Ya Allah, what a shame it would be if you let him still fall into sin. Ya Allah, we don't take pity on the person who goes from the temple into the hellfire. Ya Allah, how pitiable is that person who has been to the Kaaba, has been to Medina Manawara and still is destined for hell. Ya Allah, we ask you to take away from us the actions that, are earn, that are continue to earn us hell. Take away from us the sights, the thoughts, the emotions, the feelings, the memories. Ya Allah, that might be, might be means of earning your, your displeasure. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to make us and mold us in a way that is pleasing to you. Ya Allah, from the tips of our hair to the soles of our feet, Ya Allah, transform us in a way that is pleasing to you. Ya Allah, let each and every of our actions, our thoughts, our words, our sayings, our deeds, our feelings be transformed in a way that is pleasing to you. Ya Allah, let nothing be more attractive to us than those things that are pleasing to you. Ya Allah, let there be nothing more repulsive to our hearts than those things that are displeasing to you. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, accept us to become true 
let us live up to the responsibility of being of this legacy of being of the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ya Allah increase us in our love for him Ya Allah increase us in our love for you Ya Allah let us increase us in our love for his mission and our love for your deen Ya Allah let us dedicate ourselves entirely with our hearts and our souls and our time and our wealth Ya Allah let us serving and fulfilling the mission of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ya Allah let us dedicate ourselves to bringing ourselves closer and more firmer onto this deen Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, accept our du'a, accept our ibadat. Ya Allah, accept our memories and our, our, and our nasiha of those, of those beautiful places. Ya Allah, let us be a means for us, each and every one of us, to go there over and over again. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we are your weak and sinning servants. Ya Allah, you must have billions of servants like us. But Ya Allah, we have only one you. Ya Allah, if you do not accept our du'as on this day, there is no other being for us to turn to. There is no other being for us to make du'a to. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to accept us on this day. Ya Allah, we ask you to accept our du'as. Ya Allah, forgive us for all the sins that we have ever done. Ya Allah, increase us in our deen. Ya Allah, any and every obstacle that we might have, any difficulty, any obstruction that we might be having in following our deen, Ya Allah, we ask you to remove that difficulty and replace it with ease. Ya Allah, make it easy for us to follow each and every aspect of the Qur'an. Ya Allah, let us make it easy for us to follow each and every aspect of the Sunnah and Sharia. Ya Allah, let us not pass away from this world unless and until that we have attained your pleasure and attained your mercy. Rabbana takammal minna innaka anta samil alim wa tubu alayna innaka anta tawab rahim wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin